Our scripture today comes from Mark 9, 30 through 32, and Mark 10, 32 through 34. Mark 9, 30 through 32 reads, They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant, and were afraid to ask him about it. Mark 10, 32-34 reads, They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Let us pray. Dear God, we come before you humbly today on this glorious day that you have made in a mind of seeking only you, Lord, and your will and your presence. Let ourselves be reminded of the truths that you have stated in Scripture, notably in the gospel of the truth that Jesus is alive, for he has risen from the dead and he is coming back again. Humbly we ask, Lord, that you guide our pastor, Mike, today, and that as he teaches and preaches, your truth and your will will be done through him, and that his words become your words. And that, Lord, you just put a blessing of security and peace over Mike, guard him from evil, and guide his tongue. We give thanks to you in earnest for all that you have done, Lord. Amen. The wondrous love of Christ that Simon just spoke of is exactly what we're going to be pointing ourselves at as you hear the reading that Nathan read, as you hear the song that Simon said. I, I do need to, to come back to that after sharing a couple of things with you just as a matter of pastoral concern. Uh, some of you may have heard, some of you may not have heard, uh, that Kelsey DeRoos, uh, who has served as our uh, minister of uh, discipleship and technology over these last four and a half years is departing our ministry here. She and Ben are pursuing new opportunities in uh, Des Moines, and we will gravely miss her. Uh, next week, we'll have a little reception for her um, in, the, in the morning, so watch for the news uh, of that. We encourage you to come back. And then, um, and of course, uh, Staff Parish is working busily, of course, to find a new person to come and, and, and fill that spot and be uh, alongside us in ministry. And um, Karen Schmidt's well-earned retirement after a decade and a half here on our staff is coming up in 39 days. Um, so we'll tell you more about the party there. Um, we are an active church with lots going on. And so we certainly uh, are thrilled to have um, these actually great celebrations. We're going to miss both of them so desperately. But of course, um, it's their moment to, to, to be celebrated and be moving on. Now, we, we are a church that has sent many out in ministry, and some of you may remember uh, for several years, a couple named uh, Jacob and Sarah Sandholm lived alongside us. Um, they more attended the first service because they both sang in the choir, young people. Uh, Jacob had begun his seminary while he was here. He served as our ministry assistant one summer, and just this week, they had their first child. Um, her name is Marilyn Renee, 
And um, all you women will ask me, yes, she is measured in inches, and she has some pounds, but how many of either? I don't care, but um, she's alive, living, and they're happy about it, so they must be the right numbers. Um, so that, that's, that is that. Um, Jacob is the associate pastor at the Sheldon United Methodist Church and the lead pastor uh, at Archer. So he spends half his morning at Sheldon and runs over to Archer and does the preaching. So um, I think he's also the only employee at Archer, so that's uh, okay. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. When we turn into the season of Lent, which is where we're at in the church, as we put the purple pyramids on the altar, and we begin to march towards the cross of Christ that precedes the empty grave, we are to take on spiritual challenges in our lives. That's a long-standing tradition within the Christian church. And, and I encourage you that if you didn't start yours on Ash Wednesday when Lent began, it's never too late. Don't wait until next year. Don't wait until the turn of a new year or, uh, you know, until summer comes or something like that. If you need to grow in Christ, start now. No better time than right now to deepen our understanding of Jesus and, and to really look at what Jesus' ministry to us and for us really is. So I'm going to continue with where Simon left you last week in the first prediction of Jesus' death and his, I, I thought, very good explanation of Christian suffering and turn to this that Jesus' suffering and death is a divine necessity. Think about what that means. That God believes that Jesus' suffering and death is a necessity. When I've said that or read that or been in Bible studies, uh, it doesn't matter with youth, children, or adults, the, the perennial question that comes up is, why must Jesus die? Well, why, why does Jesus have to die? Well, human beings <coughs> are the answer in the immediate and are the immediate cause. I mean, we know about Jerusalem 30 AD. Uh, the Romans were running it. The Jews were threatened by Jesus' power. And so, of course, they conspire and they put Jesus to death. But the ultimate cause, the ultimate answer to why Jesus must die is the justice and the love of God. Bear here with me a little bit. Jesus' suffering and death is the expression of God's justice. God is a just God. And he knows this, the sin of humanity is great. I mean, we have to take a minute, you know, and several minutes during Lent, and look at our own suffering and see what has to be mined out of our souls to get right with God. Now, when you look at your own sin and then multiply it to this size of group and the size of group that's there in the church online and then multiply that to, to the population of the entire world and sin is anything we put between ourselves and God or let us distract ourselves from, 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 from worshiping God, from serving God well, think of the magnitude of the sin, the comprehensive nature of the, the sinful condition uh, of the world and, and this is where God needs to seek justice Andy Bannister wrote when true forgiveness is given someone has to pay the price Someone has to pay the price for all that sin. The offense needs forgiveness. And someone always pays the price. Either the victim pays the price or the offender pays the price for an acquittal. And when we look at it that way, then we understand that the cross offers mercy and forgiveness, but not at the expense of justice. Not at the expense of justice. It doesn't just get waved 
away. And so secondly, Jesus' suffering and death is an expression of God's love. See, true love has the power not to ignore hurt, but to absorb it, but to, but to take it in, says Richard Cunningham. Jesus absorbs the pain of our sin on the cross. You've heard it in the liturgy. You've said it in the liturgy. You Even if someone asks you why Jesus had to die, you'll say, well, he takes away the sins of the world, or he takes on our sin. He takes all that sin that I mentioned before, and he puts it on him. It becomes his. And when we look at the, 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 the Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or just what Nathan read a couple minutes ago about how Jesus is going to be mocked, how they're going to hawk loogies on him, how they're going to beat him, how they're going to push the crown of thorns into his head with with, with how they're going to flog him with a cat of nine tails and then crucify him. And you say, there is a lot of gratuitous violence in the crucifixion story. And you say, well, wait a second. Why does it feel so gratuitous to us? Because sometimes we miss the width of it and the depth of it. You see, Christ's suffering is so terrible because it needs to be equal to the seriousness of the sin. And that's a lot of sin. That he's taking on and so we need to understand and accept God's will regarding Jesus death his predictions in Mark chapter 8 that you heard about last week and Mark chapter 9 and 10 that you heard about this week and the other gospels are not directional markers but a depiction of Jesus mission in life he says in the scripture Nathan read today we are going to Jerusalem he knows exactly what's at Jerusalem that's where the Jewish teachers and the law is. That's where the Romans are. That's where the very heart of the religion that he's taking on and saying, listen, <clears throat> you're getting, you're missing the point. You're missing the point of love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbors yourself. You're missing the point. So we're going to Jerusalem, and there we're going to teach about him. And when I get to Jerusalem, he says to, to his disciples, the Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of evil men. We say, why? Because that's his mission. Could not we sometimes say, God have given an alternate way? And of course, the history of our Christian tradition says there's no need for ultimate theories about how the price of sin might have been paid. God could have done whatever he wanted to. And so someone will say, well, why doesn't God just make us faithful? Why, why doesn't he just make us faithful? Why don't he just make us obey the Ten Commandments and, and the rules of the law? Because that would make us robots, and nobody wants to be a robot, right? I mean, that's no faith at all, to simply do what you're told. You have to aspire to it. You have to love being faithful and obedient. That, that's no faith at all. The divine necessity is, is that we embrace in gratitude and thanksgiving that we're forgiven, loved, and freed from the hell of our own making. You see, that's what our own sin is. We, we make it ourselves. We think up at ourselves or our proclivities or our, 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 our inclinations take us to those places. And, and because of that, the universal nature of that, Jesus is killed by the two grand divisions of the human race for whom he willingly dies. 
the two grand divisions of the human race for whom he willingly dies. See, Jesus' death is described in the gospel in two phases. Phase number one, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death. That is to say, the leaders of religion <coughs> are going to condemn him to death. And the leaders of the religion are called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, or Sanhedrin, is the highest court of, of, of uh, justice in, in Israel, that is the Jewish world, and it represents the Jews. And the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem condemns Jesus to death. But they have um, a fly in their ointment in the sense that they, though they've condemned him to, to death, they have no law that will allow them to, to kill him. They're, un, they're not permitted to do that. So they need to finagle some civil authorities to help them out, to carry out their sentence. That's phase two. Not only will he go up to Jerusalem and be condemned by the Jewish leaders, then phase two that, that Nathan read about, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. The death sentence is carried out by the Gentiles, a.k.a. the Romans. And understand what this means in the gospel. This is the first express statement that the Gentiles will work with the Jews in Jesus' death. Thus, the two grand divisions in the human race, Jew and Gentile, for whom Jesus died, take part in his crucifixion and actively work to crucify him. Now, of course, we've been reading this. We know this, that Jesus predicts his death to prepare his disciples. And they don't understand Incomprehension seems to be the normal reaction of the disciples. Listen, they have seen, and I'm just going to use the Gospel of Mark here. I'm not going to embroil you in all the rest of them. But they have seen all these revealing miracles in Mark. They've seen Jesus drive out demons in Jewish territory, in Gentile territory. They've seen Jesus feed 5,000 people in Jewish territory, and then 4,000 people in Gentile territory. He, he's, making the, he's making his ministry even for all. Physically, he heals lepers and the paralyzed. He raises a young girl who is dead back to life. He solves a woman who had had a menstrual flow for 12 years. Imagine that woman. He gives her cleansing. He gives hearing and speech to the man who is deaf and mute. He gives sight to a blind man. He walks right on top of the lake and never gets wet at all. And even after all those, and even after the distinct unveiling of Jesus' identity, when Jesus is miraculously transfigured, which means his figure glows bright as gleaming snow, and he's seen spoke, speaking with Moses and Elijah, who have been dead for many years, and they hear the voice of God itself speaking to him, they are so preoccupied, they're so preoccupied with their own anxieties that they miss Jesus' message. Are they blockheads? Well, let's not be so hard on them. It's more likely that because of their knowledge of the Testament that we call old, their knowledge of the law, their knowledge of the prophets, that they likely had a different notion, even though they've been with Jesus through all the miracles, through all the healings, all that sort of thing, they likely had a different notion of Jesus' kingship because they knew about David, they knew about Solomon, and their hearts and minds were on some sort of geopolitical, religious political king coming. But listen, 
Listen, death and resurrection should not surprise his disciples. Not only had they seen all that, they'd been told three times that it was coming. They just didn't want to hear it. My goodness sake, we know that. The heart is always hard to hear. It's never sweet in our ears to hear hardness that's coming told us, to us. And what's really interesting at this point is they were afraid to ask Jesus questions. Historically, the disciples were so inquisitive. They asked questions about everything. And when Jesus tells them about his, the second and third prediction of his own death, they go completely mute. Not a word to say. Now, maybe, and you heard it last week from, from Simon, maybe they were worried they'd get rebuked like Peter did. Get behind me, Satan. Uh, nothing worse could happen to them as far as their mind. But when we look at this story, we have to ask ourselves, is fear better than knowing the truth? We all know somebody that says, oh, don't tell me any bad news. Don't tell me, don't tell me, don't tell me. And Jesus is teaching the disciples. But the disciples are not integrating his death and resurrection into their worldview. They're not in integrating Jesus' worldview into their own, which, by the way, is one of the main tenets of Christianity. We have to integrate Jesus' worldview, a biblical worldview, into our own. But the disciples were failing to do this. Now, why is Jesus doing all this? Jesus is preparing them for their own suffering. Because here's what we know. Anybody that's been Christian more than a week knows this. The Christian life is not is not a paved road to wealth and ease. Amen? The Christian life is not a, a, a paved road to wealth and ease. It doesn't get easier. Life doesn't stop having its kerfluffles in it just because we've become a Christian. Suffering doesn't go away. Cancer doesn't go away. Ache doesn't go away. Loss of job doesn't go away. Wars in our world do not go away. The ability to manage those things faithfully should intersect with our difficulties and help us wander through them, walk through them. There will always be hard work. There will always be persecution and deprivation and deep suffering in the world around us. And so Jesus talks about his sufferings in ways so that the hope is right in front of them beyond their suffering. He wants them to see that. Their hope is right before them Beyond the suffering. See, they have such a clear disaster, vision of the disaster. They have such a clear disaster of Jesus dying that they miss the greatest news. See, Jesus' predictions of his death are always followed with something like this. In Matthew, <clears throat> Mark 9, 31, he talks about, the, he predicts his death, but then he says, after three days, the Son of Man will rise. In chapter 10, Nathan read, three days later, he will rise. See, this is for us. We can't let our clear vision of disaster bar us from seeing the glory that will come after that. Let not our transient suffering, which is all very real, I understand that. If you're going through a relationship breakup, I know that's very real suffering. If you're battling cancer or some of the other things that can come to us as health woes, that's very much real suffering. And all the other things that are very difficult for us are real suffering. And we must not let our transient suffering block our view of glory, block our view of something very great happening 
right in front of us. Now, I know, we're in March Madness, <clears throat> so how can I go on without telling a basketball story? <clears throat> Some of you are, had enough laps around the earth that you remember the old Iowa Fieldhouse. When I was in school back in the 19s, Iowa had a very good team, and they had a star player named Ronnie Lester, who Magic Johnson calls the best basketball player he's ever had contact with. Ronnie Lester was the star of the Iowa Hawkeyes on the year that they were going to the Final Four. And I was, I would oftentimes go up to Iowa University because a lot of my friends went to Iowa University, and they had seats in the student section. But unfortunately, when you're the friend from another college, you get a seat that's where, those of you that used to be there? Behind the pole. They said, obstructed view seat. Which meant in the seat that I would often get from my friend Jim Anderson or, or, or McSweeney or somebody, I'd sit right behind the pole, which meant I could see all the court except the Hawkeye's basket. But when Ronnie Lester was playing, let me tell you this. They were playing Minnesota one day. Uh, Joe, uh, Michael Thompson and Kevin McHale were the stars for that team. And Ronnie Lester and that team that were going to the Final Four would come down the court. Let me tell you, I was not too proud to stick my head right in Jim Anderson's lap so I could see around that pole. Because I didn't want to miss the glory of the Hawkeyes winning that game. And the way when Lou Dolson called the, you know, coached the Hawkeyes, it, it was, it was um, nervous. You, you Hawkeye fans know this because we'd be down two or three points at halftime and then they'd put on this press and then we'd be up by 20 by the end of the second half, the end of the game. But when I was watching just a silly little basketball game, I wasn't going to let anything, including a 12-inch wide steel beam that was holding up the old field house, block my view of the glory that was going on in the court. So we need to ask ourselves, Am I letting my sight of the cross, the cross that, by the way, remember, in our Protestant tradition, has no statue hanging from it, has no depiction of the crucified Lord hanging from it. Am I letting my sight of the cross and the suffering that's going on in my own life block out the knowledge of the empty tomb? Because understand this, Jesus has been risen a lot longer than he was crucified. You know, the crucifixion only took a day. Resurrection only lasts forever. He's alive in the world living with us today. That's why we prepare ourselves for Easter because we have to take, we have to take a clear understanding and have that good vision of the cross of Christ and our suffering, but we cannot let our sight of the cross block out our knowledge of the empty tomb. The ultimate triumph of humanity is given to us by divine necessity, the suffering and the ultimate death of Jesus Christ. It is not easy it is not easy, and it shouldn't be easy for us, but it is the best. It is exactly what we need to understand that Christ suffered by divine necessity so we might be freed from the hell of our own making. Give thanks to God, and as we prepare to now go into the beautiful day he's prepared for us, will you pray with me the prayer of John Wesley that he wrote two and a half centuries ago for our Lenten season, would you say it aloud? O merciful Father, do not consider what we have done against you, but what our blessed Savior has done for us. Don't consider what we have made of ourselves, but what <coughs> is making of us.
for our, our God. May his precious blood cleanse us from all our sin and your Holy Spirit renew and sanctify our souls. May he crucify our flesh with its passion and lust and cleanse all our brothers and sisters in Christ across the earth. Amen. God bless you all. You are beloved.